If you have notes from last week, they're the same ones. We should be on page three after the red part uh, is where we're, we're kind of starting. And I don't know, you know, how familiar you are with the Old Testament, but uh, we are, we're studying Jeremiah and we spent the first three lessons doing context. You know, it was really important to the study of Jeremiah to, to know that God has only always and ever wanted to bless us beyond our wildest imagination. That's, that's all he's about. And all he wanted with us from the very beginning was to just to be with us, to have a relationship, to have a friendship that just grows. And um, at first, he was going to do it. This was going to be for everybody. You know, you start with Adam and Eve, and it's going to be everybody. And, and that didn't work out so well. So then he, he starts over with Noah. It's still going to be everybody. That didn't work out so well either. So the next time he started over, he started over and he said, okay, I'm just going to do like a nation and they're going to be the example for everybody. And then we're going to do everybody else was, if you go back and look in scripture, you'll see evidence that he, he, he never intended it just to be limited to, to the nation of Israel, which of course is the descendants of Abraham. But he always intended it to be everybody. Even after he chose Israel, he always intended to open the door to everybody. And, um, so we followed, you know, the Israelites through their slavery and saw how God rescued them and led them physically, visibly as a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud through the desert. These are people who knew nothing about surviving in the desert, led them through the desert right up to the door of the promised land. And in that time, he provided food for them every single day. It, it, it just formed on the ground like dew. Every morning when they woke up, there was breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And every single week, he did a miracle. And that miracle was on the sixth day, they could gather enough food for two days, and it wouldn't spoil overnight. If they, if they kept it overnight any other day, it would spoil. But the sixth day of every single week, there was a miracle. And if they ran out of water, water would come out of rocks for them. Okay, so, I mean, there was the miracles right and left, and there was miracles, like, no matter what kind of adversary they ran into, whether it was snakes or, or warrior nations or whatever, miraculously, God would deliver them. They didn't have to lift a finger. He marches them right up to the border of the promised land and says, okay, time to go in. You know, just, there's just a couple of things to remember. You know, remember that I am your God. <laughs> Don't. Don't go running after the gods of the Canaanites who are the people that live in this land. And, um, and so the Israelites, despite all of these miracles and all of these things, great things that God did, not to mention parting the Red Sea and all of that stuff, were too afraid to go into the promised land. They still did not trust God to protect them and to provide for them. So God got mad naturally, and sent them back out into the wilderness and let them wander around for 40 years until that generation died off and their children grew up. Then he brought them right back 
to the edge of the promised land. Of course, in that 40 years, he didn't abandon them. He still provided for them miraculously every single day, a miracle a week, every week without fail. Got to the edge of the promised land this time, parted the Jordan River, they went in. But before they went in, he reviewed with them in great detail through Moses exactly what the blessings were that he was offering them. And the blessings, we talked about them last week, and they were amazing blessings. They were blessings about, you know, you'll never have miscarriages. Your, your women will always be fruitful. You'll have children and grandchildren. Everybody will live to a ripe old age. There will be no illness. Nobody will get sick. Your crops will never fail. You'll be so rich. You'll be the richest nation on earth, and all the other nations are going to be coming to you asking for money. It was just amazing, the blessings that were promised to them. And then he said, you know, on the other hand, if you do insist on going your own way and being your own God or choosing your own God or worshiping idols, you know, there are consequences to that because all these good things aren't going to happen to you. And you won't be protected from things like disease and famine and drought and warlike nations that live in these lands. And it's just was such a clear choice. And then... At the end of that, it wasn't just an A or B choice. There was, by the way, even if you choose to desert the Lord your God and go your own way and all these terrible, terrible, terrible things happen to you because you walked out from under his protection, even at the end of that, when you have been brutally beaten, your nation has been destroyed, and you've been carried off into captivity, even then, while you're in captivity, the Lord will not forget you. The Lord will remember you. And someday, even if you choose that path, someday, he will bring you back, and you will become his people, and he will be your God. And Moses laid all that out for them at the beginning, before they ever set foot in the promised land. Well, hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of years later, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of idol worship places that they built, Asherah poles, altars to Baal, just, they, it, the scripture says it was so bad, there was an idol under every spreading tree and on every high hill. They had more idols than they had towns. They had idols in their homes. They had idols outside. They even put idol altars in the temple of God. It was that bad. After Most everybody's heard of King David. After King David and his son Solomon, there was civil war. And um, the kingdom split. The Lord's hand was in that because he was trying to save just the good part. Of, of the nation of Israel, the, the southern tribes of, of Judah had hope, you know, and, and the Lord thought, well, maybe if I just work with a clan, you know, within the nation, maybe it'll work out. And so he allowed the, the northern ten tribes to be split off, and those northern tribes were named, took the name Israel, and the southern tribes took the name Judah. Well, the northern tribes had a series of kings, and they were every single one of them was wicked, led them through idol worship like you wouldn't believe. And finally, the Lord allowed Assyria, which was 
the world power at the time, and lived in the north of them to come down, attack Israel, carry them off into captivity. So at the time that we enter the book of Jeremiah, and at the time that Jeremiah is called, it's been about a hundred years since that happened. So this happened before Jeremiah was even born, because when Jeremiah was called, he was just a very young man. And we talked last week about the fact that Jeremiah was called when he was before he was born. And we talked about the fact that we are all called before we are born, that we all, each of us have destinies, and that we are born with the gifts that we need to fulfill that destiny. And that if you feel at all confused or lost or, you know, unfulfilled, in your life, then it means that you're sensing an incongruence between what your real destiny and your gifts and your calling is and where you are, you know? And so one of the ways to get a handle on that is to kind of look inside you and see what what are the gifts that I have and to and to bring that to the Lord and ask him, you know, I have these strengths. Strengths is another word for gifts, okay? It's it's a, it's a less spiritual word, you know, but it's a word. Think about what your strengths are, okay? <clears throat> also think about what your greatest weaknesses are, and they often pair up, you know. Often your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. Some, someone who, who has a gift of leadership can also railroad people, for example, okay? So you may see one or the other side of it operating in your life. But bring that to the Lord. And ask him about it. And, and from seeing your gifts, you will, you, it will give you clues as to what that calling is. And you can ask him what that calling is. And he, he wants to tell you. I mean, he gifted. He made you. He gifted you. He wants you to know what it is. He doesn't want you to be bowling in the dark. Like that one-minute manager book used to say years and years ago. You know? He, he, he wants you to know what you're aiming for here. Okay? But the... The bottom line is you're aiming for a relationship with God. And he not only gifted you with innate gifts at birth that have grown in you all your life, but there are also gifts that you can ask for. Gifts for free and that anybody can have. And um, I, I named off a couple of them last week. Um, one of them is wisdom. Another is humility. And I, I brought uh, this, this prayer to pass around. And it's just a, the most wonderful prayer. Asking for the gift of humility is what it is. It was written by a man named William Law back in 1726. And, it, and I, I got it out of his book. Um, it's just a little tiny book that is a fabulous book with a really long name. They had very serious names back then, and he, his, the name of his book was A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, which is kind of a scary title, but it's a great little book. And this prayer came out of that, out of that book. If somebody will hand me a, hand me a copy I'll, I'll read it to you because it's, it's, this is how you pray to the Lord for a gift. Dear Lord, let no day pass without my supplication to you for the whole spirit of humility. Fill every part of my soul with it. 
to make it the ruling, constant habit of my mind, that I may not only feel it, but feel all my other impulses arising from it, that I may have no thoughts, no desires, no designs, but those that are the true fruits of a humble, meek, and lowly heart. May I always be poor and little and cheap in my own eyes, and fully content that others should have this same opinion of me. May the whole course of my life, my expenses, my home, my dress, my manner of eating, drinking, speaking, and doing everything, be a constant proof of the true, unfeigned humility of my heart. May I look for nothing, claim nothing, resent nothing. May I go through all the actions and accidents of life calmly and quietly, as in your presence, looking wholly unto you, not seeking vain applause, nor resenting neglect, nor taking offense at affronts, but doing and receiving everything in the meek and lowly spirit of Jesus. Amen. That prayer, if you are asking for the gift of humility, is worth saying every day. You know, and I've shared with you all how I've struggled with pride in my life. And, and that prayer is a reality check, you know. So it's, sometimes the gifts are just as simple as, as asking that. So last week we finished up talking about the gifts and we're to Jeremiah verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11. So if you've got your Bibles handy, open them up. We've got some extra Bibles here if you need them. Oh, I forgot to pass these out too. Pass, pass these around. These are little cards. Each one says food for thought. And, and what these are for is that at some point during the evening, somebody will make a comment that will touch your heart. In a way that says, you know what, I need to think about that a little more. And, and when you, when a thought occurs to you or when you hear a comment that somebody says that you want to, you know, think about again this week, jot it down on that card and then take that card with you and carry it around this week and basically hold it before the Lord. You know, think about whatever that thing is that, that you get the nudge about tonight and then next week bring the card with you and we'll and we'll share what what we found out with our cards this week jeremiah was a visual person does does anybody learn visually here yeah yeah it's it's probably the most common way to learn yeah who who learns from hearing primarily really well Naturally, the speech therapist. <laughs> anybody else who's an auditory learner that you know? Is anybody the rare kind, the kind that learns from feel, from manipulation of, of objects? You have to do it yourself? Yeah. 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 So that you, that's about the right kind of proportion that you would find in any group. Is you'll, most people will be visual. The next biggest chunk will be auditory and then you'll find one or two people in the group that will be um, kinesthetic you know would need to actually do it to learn it um, Jeremiah was visual and the and the Lord talked to him visually and and so you can 
expect the Lord to adapt. If, if you're a visual person and you keep listening for the Lord and you can't hear anything, <laughs> you know, open your eyes, okay? Ask him to show you, you know, rather than tell you. Ask him to give you visual pictures, show you things in your life. You know, the Lord is all about communicating with you. So he's very, he is the inventor of creativity, so, so, um, be open to his creativity and how he's going to, to communicate with you. Um, just trust that he wants to, and that he is, um, just, just trust him. So Jeremiah, the Lord, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? Well, I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. And the Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. That makes absolutely no sense in English. It makes a lot of sense in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, the word for almond tree is shakade. The word for watching is shakad. They are spelled exactly the same in Hebrew. Remember when we did the I am and the, the name of Abraham? And you remember when I showed you that how the Hebrew is just, they just write the consonants and then the, the vowels kind of get assumed into it. Um, they do have little apostrophe looking things for vowels, but, but the Old Testament, at least it's just written in the consonants, you know, these two words, almond for almond tree and for watching are the same consonants. They're the same word. Okay. They're pronounced differently, but in fact, the, 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 the word for almond tree comes from the same root as the word for watching it. And that, that's because the almond tree was the very first tree to bloom in the wintertime. It blooms in January in Israel. So to read this verse and have it make sense, it would need to say, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of a watching tree. And the Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. That's what was said in this interaction. And it had even more significance to Jeremiah. Because if you remember from last week, Jeremiah was a priest, the son of a priest. He's from the priestly line of Levites. And there was huge significance to an almond branch to the priests. It came from a story back in Numbers 16 and 17 that happened while the Israelites were wandering around in the desert. And, and you know that Moses and Aaron were brothers, okay? And Moses was, was the prophet who was leading the Israelites, and Aaron, his brother, was the high priest. And the Lord had set this all up, but he had set it up through Moses, telling them, the Lord said X, Y, Z. The Lord said to set up Aaron as the high priest. Well... Three guys got really bent out of shape over this, and they got 250 other guys who were council members, all right, to come with them and do like a little rebellion. They're going to have a military coup here. They're, they're a political coup, at least. And they come and they, they say, you know what, Moses and Aaron, we think you just made this all up. You, you, it's just a power play. You just want to be the boss. We think everybody, and this is going to sound familiar to you, everybody should be able to be their own priest and go their own way. And there is no, you know, necessarily right or wrong. So there was, there ensued, if you read the, those two chapters, some very dramatic events. But at the end of the dramatic events, the Lord said, all right, enough, enough already. 
I am going to settle this once and for all. You tell every single tribe, the leader of each of the 12 tribes of Israel, to bring a staff. And we're going to put those staffs in the temple overnight. And just so that you know for sure that the staffs aren't switched out or tampered with or anything like that, each of you carve the name of the leader of your tribe on the staff. And if you've ever done any wood carving, you know you can tell your wood carving from somebody else's wood carving, all right? So they they carved their names on the head of the tribe on each each of their individual staffs, and Aaron's name was carved on the staff for the tribe of Levi. They put the, Moses put the staffs in the temple, it was a tabernacle, it was just a tent uh, out in the wilderness, overnight, and the next morning, Aaron's staff had not only budded like the Lord had promised, it had blossomed and produced almonds. It had produced fruit. So it was a complete miracle. It was no doubt about it. Aaron was the high priest chosen by the Lord. And so the Lord told them at that point to take that budded staff, the branch, it was now basically a branch of a live almond tree, and put it in the Ark of the Covenant, which was the golden ark, the gold-covered box that already had the tablets of the law in it, and also already had a jar of manna in it, all right? And that, that almond staff was the last thing to go into that ark. The ark, another name for it was the mercy seat, it had it has its carved cherubim on the top of it, and whenever the the Israelites would stop, the spirit of the Lord would settle over that ark, and it was kept in the holiest place within the tabernacle. So it's a it's a very big deal. So when the Lord tells Jeremiah, you know, look at this vision, and this vision means I'm watching over you. The fact that it was an almond branch had had spiritual significance about the kind of watchfulness the Lord is talking about. He's not just talking protecting watchfulness. He's watching what they're doing as well as watching over them. So then on verse 13, the Lord gives them another picture in his mind. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? Well, I see a boiling pot tilting away from the north, I answered. Aha, tilting away from the north. We know what that means. If it's tilting away from the north, it's tilting towards the south. And here's our handy dandy map. And if you remember, this this is the map of that region of the world. Egypt is, is down here. Here's the desert they wandered in. This whole big part is Assyria. This whole fertile crescent is Assyria. And um, at, the, at the time of Jeremiah, we talked about this last week, um, one of the, uh, uh, the Assyrian empire is beginning to weaken. They have, they have, comp- they've, Egypt has been under Assyrian control for about 50 years now. Used to, Egypt was a much stronger world power. But for the last 50 years, Assyria has had domination. And, and the last of the great Assyrian rulers um, has died. And one of his generals has now splintered off, made himself king of Babylon, and is slowly 
beginning to encroach upon the Assyrian Empire, kind of town by town by town, going up the Euphrates River towards Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And so you can see if, if, if Assyria and Egypt have been fighting each other for hundreds of years now, look who's right in their path, and that's Israel and Judah. And at this point, Israel is no more. They've already been taken into captivity, and, and now it's just poor little, poor little Judah. So when, when Jeremiah sees a, tilt, a boiling pot tilting from the north, that means something to him, okay? That means that Assyria, you know, the, the armies of the north are fixing to fall on Judah. This is scary stuff. Verse 14, the Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, kingdoms, <laughs> not just one declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. You see, last week, Jeremiah had tried to beg off. He tried to say, oh, I can't do this. I'm just, I'm too young. I'm just a child. God said, don't even say that to me. You know, you get up there and you say what I tell you to say. Today, I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, kings of Judah. That tells, that tells Jeremiah that his, pro, his prophetic ministry will span the lifespan of more than one king. Okay? So he's going to have to do, that's telling him he's going to have to do this for a very long time. I fortify you against the kings of Judah, against its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Well, that's a big deal because as we pointed out last week, the kings back then were notorious for just killing somebody. They didn't like their message. Remember what happened to all those prophets of the Lord that the Lord sent prophet after prophet to king after king? They got killed. And it, it, they did not die natural deaths. Being a prophet is not a way to longevity back then. Okay. So, so here is poor Jeremiah. He's just probably in his early twenties. All right. The King of Judah, in fact, is in his, is 20 years old at this point, 20, 21 years old. So he's a young man being sent to a young King and he's going to be the last prophet that the Lord sends. He's the last in a long line. Jeremiah doesn't know he's the last, but he is the last. And, and that reminds me of a, of a vision. Um, I heard somebody talk about one time, and um, it was, it's always stuck with me because it, 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 it communicates to me how we should stand. 
It was a, in this dream, this person had dreamed that they were, you know how they do the helicopter shots over the Statue of Liberty? And they circle the Statue of Liberty. And, and so they were in this helicopter and they're cir- circling the Statue of Liberty. And they circle and they circle and they circle and they circle. And they start coming in close for a close-up shot. And in a minute, they see that the whole Statue of Liberty is made up of people standing in tears. And, and it's just formed. And it zooms in closer. And there at the base of the Statue of Liberty is this one woman. And her name is Mona. And she's got a toddler climbing all over her. And, and Mona cannot understand why she is standing here. All she knows is the Lord has told her to stand here, but this toddler is driving her nuts. And Mona wants to go. What Mona can't see is that if she goes, the whole thing falls down. And that has always struck me because that's exactly what it's like being part of the body of Christ. We simply don't get to see the impact of our words, of our actions, and of our stands. And we've talked, you know, in some of our other classes about the fact that just by gathering here together to talk about the Lord and to, and to ask him to talk to us, we are like Mona. We are, we are standing where we should stand for this period of time. And it is meaningful. It is bigger than just the small action that we see in our physical bodies. And Jeremiah had no idea that he, poor 20-year-old Jeremiah, was the last prophet the Lord was going to send to Judah. The verse, uh, chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem... I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. This is the Lord talking to to Judah, all right? Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. There you go. There's one of the proofs. Remember, I, I just told you a minute ago that the Lord never intended it to just be Israel that he was saving. Israel was holy to the Lord, but Israel was only intended to be the first fruit of the harvest. All of the nations were to be harvested for the Lord. All who devoured Israel were held guilty and disaster overtook them. And man, if you, if, if you were an Israelite, you knew that for sure. You knew what happened to, the, to your enemies when the Lord got a hold of them. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob. All you clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Let that soak in for a minute. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. You know, I used to tell my teenage daughter... You can tell a lot about a person from the friends that they keep. That's a spiritual reality. You know, if we spend time with idols, be they television, work, pornography, whatever it is, we will take on those characteristics. 
where we spend our time and where we spend our resources and where we spend our thoughts is where we're going. And ultimately, that thought pattern turns into action. And sin always leads to death. It kills your soul. It kills your spirit. It kills you physically often. Okay. But there's another choice. We can choose life. And if we spend our time and our resources and our thoughts, if we devote those to God, we will become like God. It is a spiritual law. It is a reality. It, you don't have to make it happen. You don't have to be good. You don't have to do anything. Just being with him will transform you. It's just a matter of making the commitment and devoting, choosing how you're spending your time and your thought pattern. Israel followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Verse 6, they did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt? You know, where is our God? Help, you know, we've lost him. Get the God that parted the Red Sea and brought the ten plagues and gave us the manna and did a miracle a week. Did they ask that? No. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. It would have been impossible to keep a nation alive by themselves in the desert without the Lord. I, the Lord, brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. Even the priests, who, who should have been the first ones to ask, did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. Even the prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. And you all know Baal was that idol that was whose name means husband, who was especially detestable to the Lord. And there were altars to Baal all over the land. But notice, the prophets were prophets ordained by the Lord. They were gifted as prophets by the Lord. That was their calling. <clears throat> but they chose to prophesy by Baal and not by the Spirit of the Lord. They had power. Do you see that? Do you see how Satan can twist real gifts and real power that were God-given? All right? Don't be fooled just because somebody is powerful. All right? And can speak powerfully and can act powerfully. All right? It does not mean that power came from God. Or is being used. It may have even come from God, but it's not being used for God. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Kittim and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. And what he's talking about, here's our little map again. This poor thing's going to fall apart one day. But if you look at, on the map, you can't even see Kedar, but, but um, Kedar is Cyprus. I think it's over here somewhere. All right. Uh, it's the Isle of Cyprus, and 
Kedar was very rich, like in, in um, they got a lot of their lumber and building materials from there. So it was, it was a far, far away across the ocean place full of riches, okay, in the Israelites' mind. He said, and send to, and send to, um, this is Kittim is Cyprus. Kedar, I'm sorry, I said Kedar. Kittim is Cyprus. Kedar is down here in the Sinai Peninsula. It's kind of down here in the middle of the desert that they came through. So it's the representation of barrenness, all right, and, and, and want. He said, you know what? It doesn't matter who you ask, whether you ask the poor, the rich, the far, or the near. All right? doesn't matter where you go. Verse 11, has, ha, have you ever seen a nation that changed its gods? And, of course, even these other nations that haven't changed their gods, they're not gods at all in the first place. And yet, you have the living God, the living God, and you switched him out. Nobody ever heard of anybody doing that. But you did it. My people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. In fact, my people have committed two sins. The first sin is they've forsaken me, me, the spring of living water. And the second sin is they dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Two sins. And so this is a question to ask yourself. Are these sins we have committed in our own lives? Have we in any way changed our God? Have we exchanged the Lord our God for worthless idols? It's bad enough to have forsaken the Lord God who gives us life and all good things, but it's a double sin to have made other worthless dead gods to pursue and devote our lives to. Verse 14, the Lord said, is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? Ha ha, that's a good question, because God ransomed them. God redeemed them. At their birth as a nation, remember they were born out of slavery, out of Egypt. The Lord birthed them into freedom. He bought them and made them free at that moment. Why are they plunder? Why are they being treated as chattel? And you know the answer to this. The answer is because they were still slaves at heart. They never actually accepted the Lord as their God, wholly and totally. They always reserved some part of themselves. They reserved some part of their lives. They didn't allow themselves to be at risk. They only trusted the Lord as far as they could see him. That paragraph is printed in your notes. Look at that paragraph. If, if you put your name in where the they is, if I put my name in, would this paragraph have different meaning? What if the paragraph said, Gail never actually accepted the Lord as her God, wholly and totally? Gail always reserved some part of herself. Gail reserved some part of her life. Gail didn't allow herself to be at risk. Gail only trusted the Lord as far as she could see him. Verse 15, lions have roared, 
They have growled at Israel. They have laid waste his land. His towns are burned and deserted. Also, the men of Memphis and Tappanies have shaved the crown of your head. The Memphis here is not the home of Elvis Presley. (laughs) Memphis and Tappanies are great ancient cities of Egypt. And the reference to the shaving of the crown of the head is a reference to being shamed. And although, you know, we don't know for sure, but it's most likely that there were numerous instances of this happening. I've kind of walked you through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles as being the story of the kings of Israel and Judah. But if you realize that those four books of the Bible span 800 years and that to two of the, and that they completely overlap, that there are two books, two sets of two books that both tell the same stories, then you can see that that 800 years of history was very compacted. Okay, so you're just seeing kind of high points in that history. But even in those high points of that history, we have specific recorded examples where Israel and Judah were shamed by Egypt. One of them is in 1 Kings 14, um, verses 25 and 26. And it happened right after Israel split into two kingdoms, right after the Civil War, right at the end of of Solomon's reign. Rehoboam became, uh, who was Solomon's king, became Solomon's son, became king of Judah. Egypt attacked Jerusalem, and Egypt carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the royal palace. The Pharaoh, who is even named in the Bible, his, his name was Shishak, and who is a verifiable Pharaoh of Egypt, um, carried off all of the gold he could find in the temple and in the palace. And it even says that he carried off the gold shields that King Solomon had made. And this is an example of Israel and Judah being shamed, you know, by, by Egypt. Verse 17, have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Now why go down to Egypt to drink water from the Sihor? Why go to Assyria to drink water from the river? So obviously, God's not worried about where they get their drinking water. Okay, what he's, what he's referring to is what I mentioned a minute ago, and that is that the, the, the major world powers are Egypt and Assyria. Okay, so, so you know, if, if Assyria attacked them, Israel and Judah would run to Egypt and ask for help. Okay, if Egypt attacked them, Israel and Judah would run to Assyria and ask for help. All right, even if Israel attacked Judah, okay, Judah would run to Egypt. Israel would run to Assyria. Okay, help me attack my own kinsmen. All right, that's what, they made a, a complete habit of this over the years. And that's what the Lord's saying. He's, he's saying, you know, haven't you brought this on yourself? So, you know, what's the point of going to Egypt and asking for help? What's the point of going to Assyria and asking for help? And, and there's another place in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 7 and 8. It tells about the Israelites, King Ahaz of Judah, paid the Assyrians to defend him against the Arameans and against the tribes of Israel. And you know what he paid for their help with? Money out of the temple and out of the palace. It was a complete slap to the Lord because the Lord told them, I am your God. I will be your God. I will protect you. 
And yet, when they got in trouble, they went to the temple of the Lord, took the money, and paid the Assyrians for protection. It is a big deal to the Lord that we rely on him. So look at yourself. Are you relying on your 401k or are you relying on the Lord? Are you relying on your education or are you relying on the Lord? Are you relying on your skill and talent and political acumen at work? Or are you relying on the Lord? There's nothing wrong with saving money, getting an education, and being astute. <laughs> okay? But there is a difference in the heart. In the heart, all those other things, the education, your, your smarts, your money, are gifts to be that were given by the Lord and can be taken away by the Lord and you need to hold them with an open hand. If you look at your 401k or at your education and your fingers are closed around it, this is my security. The Lord will make sure to take it away from you because he wants you to rely on him. You need to consciously and intentionally open your hand and say, Lord, all of this belongs to you. I belong to you. And I trust you to provide for me. And that's as big a deal to him now for each of you this moment, this week as it is true about Judah and Jeremiah. Verse 19. Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord Almighty. Boy, if that's ever a verse for the refrigerator. You know, that it's it's like, you know, I'm the Lord's saying, just... Just be reasonable about this. Look at your life with me and your life without me. Duh, which one would you like? You know, do you want overwhelming blessing or do you want complete misery? Long ago, you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. And indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. And you know from our study of the history and context that the Lord saw his relationship with Israel and Judah as a marriage covenant. He married them when he took Abraham as his nation. He married them. And when they went and worshipped idols, they were out whoring. And that's how the Lord saw it. On every high hill at the altars of Baal, that's where they put the altars of Baal, under every spreading tree where they had the Asherah poles, you lay down as a prostitute. I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, 
The stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Sovereign Lord. How can you say, oh, I'm not defiled, I've not run after the Baals? See how you behaved in the valley? He's talking about the Valley of Hinnom, which is just outside the walls of Jerusalem. The Valley of Hinnom was where they sacrificed their own children to these idols. Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. They don't have to run till their feet are bare and their throats are dry. All right? You're, you just, you didn't even make it hard. You just went out there and offered yourself to these idols. But you said, it's, and here's, here's something to pay attention to. Here's what they were saying to themselves in their mind. They said, it's no use. I love foreign gods, and I must go after them. Is there something in your life that you're saying, I am powerless over this? I love it, and I must go after it. I have no choice. I can't help myself. It is true. If you are addicted, you, you can't help yourself. But the Lord always is there to save you. And the Lord will provide you with resources. I've never seen a church like Gateway that is as good as Gateway at providing resources. And in the Lord's eyes, we have no excuse. He's offering a hand to us. As a thief is disgraced when he is caught, so the house of Israel is disgraced. They, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, they say to wood, you are my father, and to stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, oh, come and save me. Well, where are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you're in trouble. For you have as many gods as you have towns, Judah. That's not as many Asherah poles. That's as many different gods. So why do you bring charges against me? You have all rebelled against me, declared the Lord. He's saying, you know, I'm not the one who's evil and harsh. And that's something that just, when you hear, when I, when I hear somebody say, well, I don't study the Old Testament because God's, you know, judgmental and harsh in the Old Testament. I have to say, well, you didn't read it then because the God of the Old Testament is so forgiving and so patient. You know how long he's been putting up with this idol worship, even up to and including child sacrifice? 800 years. You think he's been patient enough? He's done. He's done. It's 800 years since the exodus from Egypt. Verse 30. In vain I punished your people. They did not respond to correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. Punishment was intended to be a correction to cause a change of course. And we all know that we tend to run to the Lord when we get in trouble. 
you know, somebody's in the hospital, somebody, you know, loses a job, there's a house fire, immediately we run to the Lord. And sometimes the Lord will put us in situations to get us to run to him, you know. And besides just situational situations that would happen, God sent them prophets, prophet after prophet after prophet that killed everyone. You know what God sends us? He sends us prophets. He sends us people to talk to us and tell us the message. And he gives us to us in black and white on our bookshelf. Okay. Verse 31, you of this generation consider the word of the Lord. Have I been a desert to Israel or a land of great darkness? No. Why do my people say we are free to roam? We will come to you no more. Does a maiden forget her jewelry, a bride, her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How skilled you are at pursuing love. And he's talking about idol worship here. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. On your clothes, men find the lifeblood of the innocent poor, though you did not catch them breaking in. Yet in spite of all this, you say, I am innocent, he's not angry with me. But I will pass judgment on you because because you say I have not sinned. If you're looking in the mirror and saying, you know what, I'm good enough. God's letting me slide. He's letting me slide today. He let me slide yesterday. He's going to let me slide forever. You know, think again. God is not judgmental. God loves you. He wants you. All right. He's going to do whatever it takes to get you back. All right. And, and he doesn't want just part of you. He wants all of you. Why do you go about so much changing your ways? You will be disappointed by Egypt as you were by Assyria. Apparently, and it doesn't say specifically anywhere in Chronicles or Kings, but apparently the king of Judah, King Josiah, has recently appealed to Egypt for help against the Assyrians, that boiling pot that's fixing to overflow. But the Lord wants to be Judah's defense. And until they realize that their strength is in the Lord and only in the Lord... He will keep bringing other kingdoms to attack them. He uses the same tactic on us. Until, you know, until we realize that the things we're clinging to are worthless idols, he will keep taking them away. Thank God for that. Thank God that he is faithful to make our houses of cards fall down. That's a great promise. We talked in one of our other classes about, about taking advantage of the Holy Spirit, of the fire, burning our works, you know, of laying our works out in front of the Lord and say, Lord, you know, if I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing, would you just like burn it up and, you know, let me start over here? Okay. And I prayed that same prayer about this Bible class this afternoon. If, if this is about me, it's worthless. But if it's about the Lord, it will stand the test of fire. Last verse, verse 37. You will also leave Egypt with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected those you trust. You will not be helped by them. He's talking about how they used to make um, captives 
back in those days, they'd bind their hands up over their heads. We have stone carvings where you can see that. Um, and, and, and the Lord here is, is warning them they're not going to find help in Egypt that's going to save them from the Assyrians. This, this is a, the last and great Jeremiah himself, the words of Jeremiah, the last and greatest warning. And the warning is captivity is imminent. We're going to stop there.